Today's reading is from Luke 15, verses 1 to 10, and you'll find that on page 874 in the Church Bible. The parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God of a one sinner who repents. Now let me pray before um, we look at this together. Lord God, our Father, we believe that your word is breathed out by you, that it is inspired by your Holy Spirit, and that it is good for us as we gather under it today. And so we pray that you would use your word to speak to our hearts, to change our hearts, and then to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you visit the market town of Olney in Buckinghamshire, and you go to the churchyard of St. Peter and Paul, you'll come across the grave of John Newton. And this is what it says on the stone. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. Newton would go from slave ship captain and wicked man to gospel preacher and hymn writer. And of course, he'd describe his conversion most famously in his great hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And there's a reason why that hymn is so well loved, because it captures so clearly what Christian believers have experienced throughout the centuries, both a knowledge of their profound lostness, a wretch like me, and then of course the incredible joy of being found and rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ, amazing grace. Now, Newton, of course, was plucking his language straight out of Luke chapter 15. Now, we're only covering the first half of the chapter this morning, and there's three parables in this chapter, all connected by that common theme of lostness. 
The first two, which we've got today, uh, verses 1 to 10, they're, if you like, the kind of trailers. Um, They're sort of trailers for the third and most famous of the parables, the parable of the lost sons, uh, which we'll come to next week. If you like, that's the kind of feature-length film. Uh, These are setting us up um, for that. But nonetheless, there's lots that these two parables say to us and that we can learn from them, from the lost sheep and the lost coin. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see, first of all, that we are lost, that Jesus searches for the lost, and that heaven rejoices when we are found. We're lost, Jesus searches for the lost, and heaven rejoices when we are found. Now, before we get into the parables, we may ask, well, why is this the thing that Jesus is talking about here? Well, over the last few weeks, Robin has been showing us uh, chapters 13 and 14, and he's been telling us that the question that dominates this section in Luke is found in Luke chapter 13, verse 23. Will those who are saved be few? How many people will be saved? Who will be saved? And to answer that, Jesus has been saying that there will be many people who will miss out on salvation and many people who receive it. But he's particularly been saying it will surprise us who finds their place in the kingdom of God and who is outside, who finds their place in the great banquet of heaven. That's the picture he's used to describe his kingdom. The proud religious folk, the first in society, well, they'll be the ones who often reject the invitation of Jesus to his banquet. They'll find themselves cut off from God. And the last, the last in society, those who know their humble position before God, who are aware of their sin, who know their need of salvation, well, it will be them who are welcomed in and get to eat at the king's table. Now, as Luke 15 15 begins, we see those two groups of people, the first and the last, coming to Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners, they gather around Jesus to listen And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious folk, well, they grumble about him. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So who are these people? Well, the tax collectors, um, they they were traitors to the Jewish people. They worked for the Roman overlords, they betrayed their heritage. Not only that, it was corrupt work. These guys were rich, but it was ill-gotten gain. They were wealthy because they skimmed money off the top for themselves. And because of all that, they were ritually unclean in the Jewish religion. Now, sinners, that was a derisive term used by religious folk like the Pharisees, for people whose lives displayed obvious immorality. It was what they called people who spent their lives drinking at parties, or violent thugs, or those who slept around, or prostitutes. And it also included the sick and the disabled because they saw that as being a judgment from God on their sinfulness. So the Pharisees and the scribes, the world was divided neatly into two for them, There were those who were like them, these people who lived pious lives of of godly respectability, religious people. 
They believe themselves to be righteous and, and deservedly in God's good books. And then there were the rest, sinners. And the Pharisees despised people like that. They had nothing to do with them. One of their teachings said, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to the law. They practiced separation from such folk. They thought they may get polluted by their sins. But they've noticed that these sinners, well, they keep coming to listen to Jesus. This rabbi, who should know better, is not ashamed to associate with them. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them, and they're disgusted. The godless tax collectors and sinners can't get enough of Jesus, but the religious, well, they mutter and complain that Jesus takes time to be with them. Actually, it's, it's a bit more than that. If we just look closely at their complaint there, it's not just that he receives them, it's that he receives and eats with them. Now, to eat with someone was to be in close fellowship. It was to be a friend. But think about that. Notice the link to chapter 14 and all that talk of who gets into the heavenly banquet and who's left out. Who will and won't eat at the king's table. Well, here it is. These religious folks, they absolutely despise Jesus for welcoming to his table those who they consider to be obviously immoral. They can't understand it. It goes against all their principles. Their attitude of self-righteousness and condemnation of others, well, it will ultimately shut them out of the heavenly banquet. They won't eat with Jesus while these people are eating with him. Now notice then the link between verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 3 begins, So he told them this parable. So this is really critical to understanding all three parables, not just the first one, but the two that are coming, including the one next week. That Jesus tells them in response to the attitude of the Pharisees and scribes. That's the primary target. It's the virtuous, not the vile. Now, it's going to have lots to say to, to sinners as well as we, look, as we look at it together. But it's aimed primarily at those who think that they are righteous and deserve acceptance by God from their, for their religious piety. Now, let me just say, of course, we know today that churches across the country are full of people like the Pharisees. But let's not be too keen to look out there. Let's look in here as well, that there is something of an inner Pharisee that lurks in the heart of each of us. And I wonder if that might be exposed in us as we go through uh, these parables. Let's keep that in mind as we pay attention let's turn to them now. So the first thing, parable one, the lost sheep. First thing we learn is that we are lost. There's two parables, both with something lost, the sheep and the coin. And the first is just a common rural scene, verse four. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
Now this shepherd, he's a, he's a reasonably well-off man. A hundred sheep is a, is a decent-sized flock. And at the end of the day, he's just doing his final head count. I guess he's finally got them to stand still. 97, 98, 99. Okay, I've got to start again. Okay, one, two, a few minutes later, 97, 98, 99. Oh no. It seems that Fluffy Lambkins has gone missing. Now we might think, well look, there's only one who goes missing. What's the big deal? He's got 99 more. But no one thought that in Jesus' audience. You knew that if one went, one, one went missing, you had to find it. It was valuable to you. You were prepared to leave the 99 in the open country. That's the sort of safe enough country. There'd be other people around, probably other shepherds. And you searched the hills and the valleys for your wandering sheep. Now, sheep are pretty stupid creatures. Um, Fluffy Lambkins, in his kind of internal sheepy voice, says to himself, well, look, that grass over there, that looks pretty green to me. I must go and taste it. And off he trots. If I think sheep trot, I'm not quite sure. But once sheep wander off on their own, they can't find their way back because they're flock animals. They're used to following the flock around. And so they don't know what to do. And of course, they're in danger. They're either going to starve or they're going to fall off a cliff or they're going to get eaten by a wolf. It can't come back of its own accord. It needs to be found. It's in danger. And the word lost that's used here in this parable, that communicates that to us. Actually, it dominates the chapter. It's eight times in chapter 15 this word appears. And in the Bible, it's a word that has a range of meanings. It can mean just simply lost. It can mean sort of gone astray, wandered off, just the way we'd normally use it. But more commonly in the Bible, it, it means something stronger. It means lost unto death and destruction. Actually, you can see that in the passage, in the way the translation works, in, verse, in the next passage, sorry, in verse 17, as you hear the younger son speaking, uh, there they translate the word for us as perish. He says, I will perish here. See, it's not merely to have gone astray. It's to be in danger of perishing. If the sheep's not found and rescued by the shepherd, it will be lost forever. And just so with all humanity. The prophet Isaiah says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And this turning away from God, this going our own way instead of God's way, chasing our own desires, it will bring death to us. Though we rightly belong to God, we've wandered from his loving care and we've put ourselves in mortal danger. We're lost and we will be lost for eternity, cut off from God and all his goodness. We will perish That's the first parable. The second parable teaches us something slightly different about being lost. 
We move from the countryside to a domestic scene in a town. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now, not many of us are shepherds, but most of us can relate to this story, can't we? We've all lost stuff in our house. Which of us haven't lost our car keys or our phone or the remote control? And it's really annoying. You look everywhere, you look down the back of the sofa, you look in all your coat pockets. If you remember, you go and look in the car where you may have left it out there. And then what you probably do, if you're like me, is you blame your wife and your kids that they've moved it somewhere and not told you, uh, only later to discover that it was probably you that moved it. It's annoying, it's frustrating. But those are only small things, car keys or a remote control. If it's something precious, like a wedding ring, or a gift from a loved one, or our life savings, well then it's deeply upsetting, isn't it, to lose something so valuable. And that's the scene here. This woman, she's not lost a small thing. She's lost something of real value. I think we're meant to assume that this is a poor woman for whom this would make a real difference. A tenth of her savings has gone missing. It's distressing. And of course she won't stop until she finds it. It desperately matters to her. Now we might ask, well, why does Jesus tell this parable, the coin parable? Isn't he making the same point that he made with the sheep parable? Why is he adding this extra one in? Well, it's not exactly the same point, I think. Yes, it's both about something lost that needs to be found, but I think the the details of the story just reveal something new to us about what it means to be lost. Let's just look at the details. So the sheep, the sheep had wandered off far away from home. That's how it had got lost. It got lost that way by wandering off. But the coin, well, that's lost inside the house. It hasn't gone anywhere physically. It's right there. But it's just as lost. Because, well, look at the detail of the search. The woman has to light a lamp and sweep the house, searching the dirty and dark recesses of the house in order to find it. The coin, though it's still in the house, is lost in the dirt and in the darkness. I think this is what he's getting at. That it's possible, of course, to get lost by wandering, by a deliberate turning away from God and choosing a path of immorality. But it's also possible to get lost inside the house, as it were. To be there, physically close to your owner, in church, if you like, living a respectable religious life, and yet be entirely unaware of your lostness and be covered in dirt and in the dark. If we put all this together, this is what we learn about our spiritual state, that we're lost, and that some of us are obviously lost, others not so obvious, but lost all the same. We're lost because we've gone astray, from the Lord and his goodness, we sought to walk our own path 
and we're lost in the dirt of our sin and the darkness of our minds. And that's a really terrible reality because it means we're in danger of perishing for eternity. We're lost. But that's why Jesus came. Here's the second thing. Jesus searches for the lost. Of course, Jesus is the rescuer in both of these stories, the shepherd and the woman. Jesus is like the shepherd who pursues the lost sheep and rescues him from danger. Verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now we're not told how long it takes to find the sheep, but it of course could take a really long time. Um, I spent a fair bit of time in the Welsh mountains when I was training, and of course that's big sheep country. Um, Not big sheep, but just lots of sheep. Um, There are some big sheep, I suppose. Now, there are lots of places, if you spend a bit of time, you you realise there are lots of places that a sheep can get lost. Um, They can go for miles, of course, uh, but there's also loads of difficult terrain and difficult places to reach that you can go uh, up crags and down crevices. And I was chatting once to a mountain guide, um, really uh, a guy called called Andy, really highly qualified um, uh, climber, and he said that he'd regularly get calls from local farmers um, help, wanting his help to rescue um, lost sheep. Apparently, this is what he told me, which I never knew before, uh, that sheep, sheep find it very easy to go up things, but find it very hard to go down things. Um, so they go up a, um, a cliff, and then they just kind of get stuck there and sort of bleat pitifully uh, into the air. And so Andy would set up his ropes... And he'd lower himself down the cliff uh, with a sling, and he'd he'd attempt to hook the sling uh, round the sheep and then pull it up to safety. But I remember this very clearly. He said, but what I didn't realise when I first started doing this is that sheep are really stupid. (laughs) And he said, what happens is, as you go down and you get near them, they're often so afraid of the rescuer that they jump off the cliff instead of be rescued. And so when he realised this, he said, what we, what we now do is we wait a couple of days and let the sheep get really weak, too weak to move, and then we go down and they're more willing to be rescued. Now that reminded me of very much of my own heart, and I'm sure you can see we're much more like sheep than we know we are. We need rescuing, but sometimes we don't want to be rescued. So this sheep, it doesn't deserve rescuing. It's got itself into trouble. And it's done that through its own foolishness. And the rescue of just one lost sheep is a huge effort, and it often puts the shepherd in danger. But he does it anyway. Even more wonderful than that, he doesn't do it reluctantly. He does it joyfully. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Jesus is the shepherd who brings back the strays. 
And Jesus is just like the woman. He's willing to get down in the dirt and the darkness himself. And he will not stop until he finds what is precious to him. He's the one who goes after those lost in the house as well. This is our saviour. Later on in Luke chapter 19, Jesus will say these words, that he came to seek and save the lost. He seeks us, pursues us, lays down his life, and he takes not just the danger and the dirt and the darkness, but even death on himself to save us. At the end of Luke's Gospel, we'll see him do that. He will take the death that we deserve for our sins on the cross in our place in order to, in order to bring us to eternal safety so that we might not perish but have eternal life. Now this is the wonderful truth of the Gospel that John Newton had his eyes open to. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We are lost sinners, but Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And finally, we see this wonderful truth. That heaven rejoices when we're found. I wonder what makes you happy. Is it the right result for your football team? Um, some of us haven't been very happy for a while. Uh, is it when your birthday comes around? Again, some of us are trying to forget those. But there are lots of good things in life that make us happy. How about drinks with friends or a meal with a loved one? Or a good joke well told or a great walk in the hills or watching a wonderful sunset. These are, these are great joys in life. They, they should make us happy. But what makes heaven happy? What is heaven's greatest joy? Each of the parables ends in joy. Uh, the shepherds and the woman, having found what was lost, they gather their friends and their neighbours around them to rejoice now, presumably, they'd also shared the news with their friends and neighbours about the lostness as well, that they were searching for these things. And so the friends, just like them, are overjoyed when they're found. The anxiety, the worry, the great concern, the frustration, it all is just suddenly over when the lost is found. And great joy is the result. They have a party. Just so, says Jesus, verse 7, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's heaven's greatest joy. The finding of a lost sinner the bringing back of a stray, the return of that which is precious. And this is something that we now know, the Pharisees and the scribes, well, they don't understand this at all. They grumble when lost sinners are brought back. 
but heaven rejoices. It causes God and his angels to celebrate. They felt together the pain of the loss, and so now they rejoice and celebrate in the finding. Just notice, though, that that it's not merely sinners brought back and rejoiced over, but repentant sinners. This is a really important part of these parables, and then particularly the the next parable, um, which we'll see next week. That to be found by Jesus is to come to a point of repentance. So by the grace of God extended to you, by the work of the Spirit in your heart, you come to realise that you are indeed lost, that you do indeed need rescuing. And so you repent, you become sorry for your, your wandering, for your sins, and you accept the rescue that you're being offered. You agree in your heart, I'm no longer going to go astray, I'm never going to turn again to my own way, and from that point on I'm going to walk in the way of the shepherd. Heaven's joy is found in the rescue of lost sinners, but there must be repentance. And this arrow is shot into the pharisaical heart in verse 7. You notice how that ends, verse 7? Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is speaking ironically here. He's, he's not saying that they're act, they actually are righteous and that they don't need to repent. No, he's describing the person who is self-righteous, who thinks they don't need finding or rescuing by him. That kind of person, they neither see their own need for salvation, nor do they rejoice in the saving work of Christ for others. Now let's just examine our hearts at that point. I wonder, is there something of ourselves to see here? Is our joy the same as heaven's joy? Is this the joy of this church, the finding of lost people? Or do we grumble seeing the issues that lost people would bring if they come to the church? Or do we rejoice with the angels? when we see the salvation of lost souls. See, heaven's joy must become our joy as well. As we come to the end, let's just think about what we've learned. First of all, that we're lost. Do you know that you're lost? Whether your life's gone off the rails in rebellion or whether you've lived a respectable and quiet life, whether you're lost in the dangerous lands or whether you're lost inside the house, Jesus says you're lost. And that means that you're perishing for eternity. But Jesus searches for the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. He values you, you're precious to him. And maybe for the first time this morning, you've realised that he's searching for you. That he's come to find you, to rescue you, and to bring you home. There's no need to be lost anymore. Stop running from him, 
turn around, repent of your sins, and let him carry you home. And heaven will rejoice for what has lost has been found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you came to seek and save the lost. We confess to you that that is what we are by nature, that we have wandered away from you, that in our sins we are in the dark, we are dirty in sin, and we need to be found by you. Lord God, we thank you that you came to find us and that if we trust in you, we will not perish but are granted eternal life. Lord God, as, as Christian believers, some of us here have been believers for, for some time. Lord, this morning as we have seen the joy of heaven in seeing lost sinners found, would you give us that same joy? Would you make that the joy of our hearts so that we might rejoice as people come to faith in Jesus, but also so that we might be stirred to go out with this message of salvation to the world. Change our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.